Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 30 of the Lay Film Podcast. I'm your co-host, Richard, and here are my co-hosts, Patrick, Tyler, T. Stizzle, Cunningham. (laughs) 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 It just gets better every time. And uh, I'm just going to say K. 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 That's me. Kmart. Yeah, yeah, Kmart Kev. <laughs> yeah, it's, got, uh, it's Kevin. In case and we got Mac in the background. <laughs> yeah, we got Mac, uh, featured guest of the week, as always. Oh, look at that face. Oh, he's so cute. Dude, I can't believe you, like, barreled past me earlier. That was so funny. I loved that. He's a fucking, he's like a running back going through the hole, an NFL running back. Yeah, he runs like a four four. Tyler, you have uh, the next movie star dog. Yeah, yeah. He's a he can... horse. He's not even a dog. <laughs> Remember when that was a thing? Like having like full on like pet movies. Airbud. Yeah, Airbud. Yeah, it's a classic. How many of? Oh, dude, the behind the scenes was dark on those movies. Oh, like, yeah, the puppies one. Yeah. Okay, what happened? <laughs> they went through a couple litters on one of the puppy ones. Yeah. <laughs> Multiple puppies dead. <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. They yeah. Said, yeah, they they went through it's them pretty awful. fast. Yeah. What? Yeah. And like, it's like a different puppy in a different or a different dog in a different scene that yeah. just died. Mm-hmm. How'd they what die the so fuck? fast? I think exhaustion or something. What? Yeah. yeah. Like look it up if you're interested. Did they Man, that's why, dude, that's why dogs need to have uh, stunt doubles. You know that uh, that reminds me of um uh movies where they See we were talking about revenge last episode. Oh yeah, we were. Airbud revenge movie. Fucking revenge. They need to do a bioproduction company on Airbud. The dog that could. Yeah. <laughs> the dogs that could. Uh speaking of uh biopics, one of my favorite ones was a uh, the one on Che or I think it was just called Che Che Guevara. Mm. Yeah, that one was a uh, was a pretty good, I think directed was it Soderbergh I don't know maybe I don't know but that was a, that was a really cool one um, also uh, Marine I, I think that's how you pronounce his name uh, it was like the this uh, most wanted in France he was like a bank heist or he like got into that and like uh, just a whole bunch of crazy stuff and um, he was the uh, Vincent Cassell played Marine in uh, both parts highly stylized love it love when biopics do that <laughs> not all the time though don't, get, don't for all of you out there making biopics, don't go crazy with it. All right. <laughs> Every Steve Jobs movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I didn't even watch this, so I can't comment on this. <laughs> I know, like when it comes when it comes to a lot of biopic movies that have like come out recently, I find myself not. Yeah. Interested in them whatsoever. You'd want to watch shit. <laughs> I watched the social network when that came out. That was cool. See, I is that is that a bio is that a biopic movie? I think it's a biopic on Facebook itself. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. Yeah, it's a biopic. And Zuckerberg though. Mm, yeah. It's been a while since I watched it. It's if it falls in the trapping where he kind of funds it directly, I think. Or is that the Queen movie I'm thinking of. It's when they're too attached to it, it stops being a biopic and starts being about like a brand they're selling. I think Social Network, I got that vibe. 
like you said, it's more about Facebook than it is Zuckerberg, which it is. But it still feels like a positive thing about Facebook. About yeah. Any of the negative. What about Jackie? That was a good, that was oh, a very, Jackie, yeah, yeah, that was a very good biopic. Not enough conspiracy for me, but I did like Jackie a lot. I forgot about Jackie completely. <laughs> I haven't seen that one. Yeah, Pat put me onto it. Mm-hmm. And now seen that one, I'm sure, it knocks it out of the park, right? Yeah, it's nice and, yeah, it's not yeah. too stylized. It's not refreshing because everything just feels so stale. Like, we were talking about the Oscars last episode. Like, it felt like pure Oscar grabs when it comes to most biopics in the United States. At least as of, like, in the mainstream, I'd say. Oh, yeah, Jackie's more about, like, her trauma of the JFK assassination mixed with the celebrity she gained and being the first lady and how she was an icon. Yeah, there's no, like... It's not like a yeah. It's not like a social network or like a more conventional biopic where it's like they, it's them overcoming something. But Jackie, it's very much just like a little window into her grievance. Yeah, I I didn't have a pick ready, but there's my pick. Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> <Just> steal that. <laughs> hmm, I'm trying to think of a good one. Social Network was not my pick. <laughs> is something like Chernobyl considered a biopic? I feel it's like, like a biopic. That's I a like. historic. Yeah, I yeah. feel like, and it like recounts a, a major historical event. But even though we were talking shit about that last episode <laughs> about Chernobyl, no, uh, making like a historical oh, yeah. Oscar <laughs> yeah. to get like Oscar fucking attention. See, see but I feel like that Chernobyl is fucking Chernobyl was amazing. amazing. Yeah, like. <laughs> So good. I totally agree. I want to rewatch that. I heard something about the series is that they made it English language because they were trying to like cater to Western audiences. Like they kind of, I don't know if they wanted to do like actually have them speak, uh, isn't it like Russian? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And that's like a turn off. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't even notice it. Yeah. I was just like, oh, to me, it's just like a story that's being told. Mm -hmm. Yeah. By, by someone else, I I don't know, or like or Band like of a different Brothers. Time. I started watching Band of Brothers with Abby. Oh yeah, I, that's actually I watched really like good. The first few episodes, and I couldn't get into it or didn't get back into it. I just started watching it with her like midway. I think she was on like episode four. Oh wow! I remember my uh, my grandpa gave me his copy of Band of Brothers to oh. watch when I was in like the fourth grade, and I'm like, <laughs> what do I do with this? Like, I didn't even watch it because it just seems so grim. <laughs> Does that count as, or is it just historical? I think that's a hor- historical yeah. retelling. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. Oh man, like, oh wait, no, <laughs> never mind. Uh, I really like Bronson. I liked. I enjoyed the, the NWA Party. movie. NWA. Oh, that's yeah. a recent movie I can think of. Mm-hmm. Which one? Uh, I think it's just called NWA, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. What about Eight Mile? Oh yeah, <laughs> I haven't, I haven't rewatched that since that came out. Did you guys see Dolomite? I think its name was it Dolomite. No, but I wanted to watch that with Eddie Murphy. Or am I thinking of another one? Yeah, this is not it. I think it's with. I think yeah, it's with Eddie Murphy. Yeah, I'm trying to remember if it's I got a Netflix name right. movie, right? I think it was. Yeah, it's about the uh, the guy who made his own films. Oh man, it's is pretty it, good. Is it like based on a true story? It's, yeah, it's based on a true story. Based real movies they just compiled all his movies into one movie mm-hmm. they're making in the film but yeah it's pretty good a film about a guy an outsider who wants to make something and he goes through a lot of hoops to make it and yeah it's about loving him more than his movies because they're not good 
What's like the best gangster biopic? City of God. That is a yeah, that is out a of good. left field, and that is a homer. Yeah. <laughs> <Right there. laughs> it just came to me. <laughs> yeah, I forgot that was a biopic. This is so crazy. <laughs> I just threw it out there. I didn't know if it was Would a biopic or not. Goodfellas be considered a biopic? I feel like. Wait, yeah, is it? Well, it's like multiple right? people involved in that, but mm-hmm. Henry Hill was a real person. I feel like it, yeah, it could be. Like, Goodfellas is also like the Wolf me. of Wall Street, like, yeah, yeah, yeah like, that's in, for sure. Like in that, in that vein, like where yeah. it's like definitely, yeah. Oh, I like uh, Molly's Game. That one's good, really good with Jessica Chastain. She played the, um, she like would host poker games and like uh, she would understand how people would like be able to count cards and stuff. Yeah. And allegedly she knew a celebrity that uh was a part of these poker games and they were illegal too and people were betting millions probably mm-hmm. fucking michael jordan, <laughs> michael jordan. <laughs> i didn't think about that actually the conspiracy begins all right yeah, but yeah it's an aaron sorkin written movie wow. though so it's like really i mean it's a it's a fun movie i, I liked it i like molly's i i, I liked it for jessica chastain like she uh is a star and uh I forgot in the Oscars from last week, we didn't talk about what's the, f- there was a biopic in the Oscar. It was in the best picture. I think it was the weird one about the making of citizen Kane while trying to be a recreation of the sixties. Oh, uh, it was like Heb or Meb or something. I forget the name. Mank. Mank. Wait, was it Mank? It was Mank. Yeah. Yeah. It was Mank. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen that? I haven't mm-hmm. watched it yet. I've seen citizen Kane. It won best cinematography. Hmm. I think it's like the artist situation. Yeah. I mean, it's a David Fincher movie, and he usually works with a really good uh, cinematographer in all his films. Like, you can generally tell when you're watching a David Fincher movie. He has, like, kind of a dark, more serious, but, like, dark, darkly comical vibe sometimes. Yeah. I had, like, a newsreel energy, like a 50s newsreel about the war. Mm-hmm. I've only seen the trailer, though. Um, Alexander the Great with Orlando Bloom. <laughs> <laughs> Troy. Troy. Braveheart. I take my bag. Troy, honestly. Troy. Yeah. Troy. Like that fight between Achilles and Hector. Oh, my God. When he, uh, wait. Heck, yeah, okay. I'm thinking of the first fight when he just fights the big-ass dude and he does, like, that fucking Spin. jump to the side and just stabs him right in the fucking trap. Oh, have you guys seen Glory? No. Mm-hmm. With Denzel Washington and... Um, what about Gladiator? That's oh, just Gladiator a, was a pick? No. That's like so. a fictionalized... <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> so we're on that tangent anyway. Yeah. Gladiator Are you not entertained? <laughs> I want to get that tatted on me. Oh, yeah. Ma- Matthew Broderick was in a movie called Glory. He was like Civil War. He plays like... Oh, yes. The, about the the... The black troops with him, yes. Yeah. yeah that one's really good. Yeah. That was a real guy. I'm a billion percent sure. I think his journal is like based on his speeches in the film. Yeah. Could be wrong. You know, it's a, a, a movie that I just saw recently, like just in passing, like I just saw it on the screen. Uh, it was uh, The Pianist. 
Mm. I've never watched that still. I'm pretty sure that that's uh, in the same <clears throat> vein. Like it uh, just recounts the events of uh, the composer. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't um, I haven't seen this either, which I want to watch. There's so many movies I got to watch, but Capote? Isn't Capote? Oh, yeah. Capote. Oh yeah, and there's also in cold blood. Oh wait, no. Oh yeah, that no, that's the yeah. Wait, is that the movie? What is it called? Oh no, no, it's just called Capote. Yeah, or yeah, Capote. 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 Yeah, Capote yeah, was great. Imagine if they bad. did have that subtitle, Capote in cold blood. <laughs> yeah, it's, like, it's just it's like, like the a, action version. He like gets revenge, but Capote's like an author. <laughs> Under, <laughs> disguised as an assassin. Like, you no, know, he, like, kills the person who, like, tried to... <laughs> you know what? I'm, put, I'm gonna put it in the list. Um, <laughs> Abraham hey, Lincoln, ran, Vampire Hunter. Hey, what about Downfall? <laughs> Downfall was great. I haven't seen that one. I haven't seen that either. It's that one that's always memed. Yeah, where he's talking in the bunker. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Bruno Gans is absolutely amazing in that movie. And yeah, it's a, it's a really really underappreciated show. I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This Forrest Gump count. I need to have some real events in there. <laughs> or Castaway. Oh yeah, that did happen. Yeah, it's very loosely based on it, but it, that did happen. Yeah, uh-huh. some dude did. Yeah, it was in a FedEx crash, and he was found. I don't think it was like. Castaway feels like years. It feels like four or five years past. I don't think it was that much. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong. Hmm. That movie hit me hard when I watched it as like a teenager. Wilson, <laughs> like when he's going, when he's turning the lights off and on in his hotel room. Oh, he's all floored by everything. Yeah. yeah. Water like, on ice. What a good movie. <laughs> what about Life of Pi? I haven't seen that one. Is that good? Uh, it's pretty. It's all right. I like the. I saw that. That's yeah. That's one of those films you can read into it really heavy. Yeah, it was like I watched it in theaters. It was really uh, like spectacular. Mm. Like the tiger on the boat was pretty fucking cool. Just the, the CGI was really good. And like the reflection on the water, mm-hmm. like seeing all that. Wow. Pretty interesting. Is it Ang Lee did it right? Mm-hmm. He did. He has such an interesting career. Doing uh, that dude, and broke back now. Yeah, and dude, broke back. Oh, and doing the Hulk, but then no one liked it. So he, we're just gonna forget about that. <laughs> <laughs> Even though he's like a prolific director as an international like director. I think Beasts of No Nation. Oh, I haven't seen that one. It's based on a book of a child soldier, so it's not one to one. But I think that may fall into that area. That's a good what? one. That was a good gangster movie. It's a child soldier movie in Africa. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking like there's like the social networks and there's like Beasts of No Nation that kind of fit that. Like, yeah, that was not trying to sell us anything. I think it's a weird genre. Dang, that kind of makes me think about um, the movie Patrick that you picked uh, this week, Mishima: A Life in Four Chapters. Because uh, I think Paul Schrader quoted saying that uh, he's never going to make a movie again after this because um, it was a hard sell. And yeah, they only made like half a million dollars making this film. I just read that somewhere and I was like, dang, he never gave up. Even though like he knew he was going to make a movie that wasn't 
like gonna be watched by many? That's because I think Mishima is such a a big part of the movie and why I picked it and I like it is he's such a unique figure that you don't hear about or I never learned about him until I saw this movie and I was like oh damn I need, I need to look this up and then I looked up stuff and yeah I was like he's just such a not polarizing figure but he feels like the greatest artist maybe ever or at least in our time in the century. I mean, yeah. I think he's kind of a hard figure to like just label as one thing. He was like, yeah, a multitude of so many big things. Like, it's almost very extreme, but he's like a real person. Yeah. I mean, you have like your own security task force. Like, what person has that? You know, you have, like, the charisma and the charm to, like, get these people to, like, serve under you, you know? Because you're, like, proving your worth to them already. And people just respect you because of your accomplishments. Because like, he's a brilliant writer or brilliant actor or director. Like, this man had, like, power over people. Which yeah. is one way to lead to, like, a cult, which is pretty much what he was trying to do. I think I think this fills into the Paul Schrader dynamic of characters. Like, I don't think he's trying to do a cult or seize power legitimately. It's just he was like a gifted guy who could never express himself. Yeah, that's in like, art, and that, that was like his highest calling. He felt was like I got a a big part of the film is the uniting of the pen and sword, like an ancient samurai lingo or saying. And he's just you could tell that's his obsession. That's his motivation factor. Throughout its life, his life, it feels like, except for at the early, early starts when he's just discovering who he is. He's, he's so endearing, I feel. Even with these positions of power, it feels like it's all not for him to take power, it's for him to try to express something at least once. He's, yeah, just trying to be, crying to be heard or something, and that's like a, such a universal feeling. Like, I think any demographic or person or culture can feel that. And I think this film is like a, so uniquely about Japan in that era and this one guy from this one artist from Japan, but it, yeah, it's such a Schrader takes it and he makes it so transcendental uniform and all that. I just really enjoyed this movie. Yeah. His entire life was an act and it's absolutely insane to see the degree to which it was performed. And, like, especially, like, in each of the chapters, you can see each unique conflict that Mishima was dealing with in that part of his life. I mean, like, with Temple of the Golden Fulfillion, you have, like, this relationship between this person's uh, perfect encapsulation of what art is and what it can do to you and just feeling, like, so, like, beneath it. Mm, it's and so, unobtainable. Yeah. And, like, just, like having that break you as a person, like at that realization that there's nothing you can do about it. 
and then the second one with like loving the pain of it all and then the third yeah just like no i think that you're dead on about um just that unique like using the pen as a sword and uh you know like the way of the samurai being like so precise and so disciplined that you that it's almost mechanical at a certain point like it's so pristine and perfect and yeah to just to just see the way that he went out it's just so constructed and so meticulously crafted not a detail was overlooked <laughs> and you could tell that this was like the guy's stage was his life like <laughs> yeah that's what i was gonna say earlier was like it seemed like yeah he just said that he had like literally reached the pinnacle and the end of the or i don't know i mean we all know what happened i guess because it happened in real life but yeah it's just like he had it so constructed and just down to the fucking t and even like his life ending was like exactly what he planned and the way he wanted it to do and it was like art in itself or you know like it was performed almost mm -hmm. which is just fucking crazy <laughs> I, I um I think that Paul Trader did a really great job of um taking it upon him himself to uh decide how much of himself should or how much of or his relation to to uh show, showcasing Mishima's life on screen and like paying respect to the to the state like his family and stuff and also, because Mishima is a very, he is a polarizing figure in Japan. Mm. And, like, I feel like he's one of those figures that, like, they don't, that is not talked about a lot. And for, for whatever reason or another. But, um, I think that approaching it from an outsider perspective and, you know, seeing how this person had such a profound effect on an entire culture that he became, like, one of the, he was like an insane icon throughout his life is it controversial of me to say like he i feel i kind of view him as like almost like a terrorist because he he kept he had he, someone in uh in captivity and he wanted to spread some kind of political message about how he feels about his own country and his whole purpose is to gather a rebellion basically all right so i think that yeah, this story is about a guy who has some kind of power and he's going to try to exploit it to the fullest. And if he fails, then there's no point in living when you fail. <laughs> I think this is a post-9-11 world. And, like, I, the word terrorist is just uh, a way to delegitimize another's perspective that you're at conflict with. Like, yeah, the... Our terrorists in our American history are the revolutionaries. They're the heroes. It's just this is a very modern convention of terror as being like if someone's a terrorist, they're branded bad and evil. When it's really just conflicting perspectives, like the people in Afghanistan, who we may call terrorists, they <clears throat> may have different causes and even ones that we can relate to on certain aspects. Mm -hmm. And I think, like Tyler said, where it's all orchestrated as a part of his art, his final mo moments is it's. He wasn't literally seizing power like that. That was impossible. He had a group of like a fancy suited 50 dudes, no guns. It was like a weird, like 
it was a weird artistic expression about him re reinvigorating becoming himself the symbol of the old Japan, the feudal militarist Japan. He builds up his body, his strength. The uniforms are very like reminiscent of those uniforms and not the fatigues in the modern military. The samurai code is the old style and all that stuff. He has a sword. And yeah, he, he concludes his big speech about the, to the emperor and his whole speech is about the postmodern existence and the institutions in that existence, like the military, they're not for the people. Well, I felt like he was kind of a hip. I felt like he was kind of a hypocrite, though, because he made excuses early on in his life to like avoid actually like fighting in the war. So like, uh, why should people listen to this guy when he didn't even go through it himself? And now he's thinks he can just lead an army. But he's not. He's not trying to lead the army. He's never meant for war. I don't know. I felt like that's what he was trying to do. I don't think he was trying to lead an army. I think he literally... He was a symbol. That was his act. plan the whole time. He's like, I'm just going to get a little troop of guys, and we're going to overtake this whatever uh, garrison, and I'm going to do my uh, performance, or not performance, but... Yeah. So, like, more... You think it's more like a celebrity, like, PR move, if it were to be modern day? It's his, it's like his, in the film he talks, it's it's his ultimate expression at that moment. The whole film's about the pen and sword, uh, the unification of action, and is it art or is it words? I think it's words. I feel like it would be words. And he talks about his writing career as like the creation of words and art and a higher plane of meaning that's fictional can never intersect with the, the real world because the real world is different, it's oppressive. And it requires drastic actions, like those of the soldier, those of the doctor, those of the person. And this was his own way, using his gifts and talents to like unify those one things. So much so that he kills himself in like the final bow on like this was my expression. I'm my action of suicide is uniting with my action of the quasi militarist attack on the postmodern existence in Japan and how it's. It's going to be the erosion of the soul. That's my read of what his thing whole thing was about. It wasn't about. I know he told his like his uh, his his like students. He kind of he's maybe a little guilty of like leading them on. Oh yeah, absolutely. From the acting school, I believe, or the, or the national theater company, the mm-hmm. ones who wear the suits. <laughs> but yeah, he like tells them like, don't let the. Don't let the general, when we take him hostage, kill himself like a samurai would. Like in reality, he's just like a very modern general. He's like, what are you guys doing? Stop. <laughs> he's like selling them the myth and everyone except for himself the myth of what this guy was at that moment. I just loved every scene that was um, on set, like built on that set. So I guess those were all the scenes, those are all scenes from. Like his books, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those, like, the, I think it was in the first act or the first chapter when, like, the leaves blow through at the Golden Pavilion. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. That whole scene was just like, that makes me want to make movies. Just that right there. Yeah, I feel like uh, Schrader did an excellent job of um, depicting what. Or the view that, or the perspective of uh, Mishima, like how he viewed the world, and to create like that same sort of experience of uh, splendor and discovery, 
in terms of like the stylization of like the sets and like what sort of emotions they evoke, like the certain colors and like the everything, like the gestalt of like the entire image along with the sound. Like he took that into such like unique consideration when uh, adapting Mishima's life along with his work. Like that is absolutely insane. Who does that? Like in terms of a biopic, like not only do you capture their life, but like, like their entire like philosophy through like their work. That's insane. I think uh, he does that to create the biography. And then I think to the final message of Mishima or whatever his act was, for me, the film has three layers of reality or three, there's the play stuff, the stage play stuff, like a hybrid of play theater and film, which is what he was famous for Mm -hmm. in the theater companies or theater. And then there's the color version of the day of him taking the general hostage in his suicide. And then the truest reality is the black and white, like literal, like we're in his memories at those time. And it's always black and white. The day is similar. It's not as fantastical as the theater, but it's in color. And the theater, those like floating, like immaculate stages design, the pavilion. It's like, where's the ceiling? Where's, where are these leaves coming from? Where's any of this? Yeah, well, how's this logically fit in anything? The yeah. floating, yeah, when he visits the... Like the scene where he's in uh, bed. Yes, it's all floating around mm-hmm. them in blackness. Yeah, dang, I just thought of... Just reading up on Mishima, I just felt like this guy was like an egomaniac. Like, just imagine any kind of celebrity today oh, doing yeah. the exact same thing in public. It would be awful, like... No one wants to hear you. Kind of reminds me of, um, uh, God, from Buffalo 66, the guy. Yeah, Vincent uh, Gallo. Vincent Gallo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. He kind of reminds me of a Vincent Gallo type character. Oh, yeah. Not like, uh, obviously, uh, Mishima, I think, is on a whole other tier level, but. Right. I, I'm the pers- same type of, like, egomaniac style, for sure. I'm of the mind that, like, to be an artist, you have to be somewhat arrogant. Yeah. Like, you have to be self-indulgent to a certain degree to believe that your ideas actually matter and Mm -hmm. should be heard. Like, I don't know. But, like, these these two individuals, though, they're, like, in an entirely different realm of, like of self-indulgence like they believe themselves to be like messiahs yeah or like someone like kanye west same shit like fucking you just have to be like a like the most egomaniac self-centered mm-hmm. person possible yeah it's like i believe that like you have to have some level of doubt when it comes to like your own means of expression and like uh just what you feel is important like your own perspective like you have to be willing to be open in terms of like uh, other possibilities and like how I don't know. And I feel like Mishima was definitely he he was probably aware of that, but it was just so beneath him, like he just didn't even care. Probably, but I mean, of course he loved. I, I'd imagine that he loved to be worshipped because um, I mean, didn't he have like a an obsession with like um, I forget what type of art it was, um, but yeah, like. I remember, like, him doing, like, that entire, like, photographic... Mm. Like, I looked up, like, the stuff, like, after seeing the movie and, um, of, like, his, uh, photography that he did, like, for a while. Like, where he... Didn't he, like, pose this, like, um... He's recreating the art from the art book and, like, other inspirations with himself in the role. Like, the, uh... The young knight with the arrows in him against the... 
tree. Yeah. Yeah. It was like a, it was like a martyr complex. Yeah, his big egomaniac and he had an obsession with death like in the second Kyokyo's place. Mhm. And I think he was such a subversive character and he was like a closeted gay man. And he was writing these sadomasochist like thrillers that like they were like high art but people bought them in mass. Yeah, like another one of my is I think my favorite like aesthetic or like favorite looking scene in the movie is Kyoko's house when he's there in like the hotel room with all the neon lights around the windows and shit. I'm like, holy shit! Like just fucking give me all of this right now. Like the the image that like strikes me the most about that entire chapter is a uh, the scene or it's like a shot of like him lying on his side and it's like a, from a bird's eye view and he's all beaten and like bruised. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's towards the end, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like for some reason that image just like was burned into my mind about like what that entire chapter encapsulates. Yeah. And it's just so like, that's the thing about like this movie as well as like Mishima himself. Like it's all about like those, like you could just take like a small little frame out of it and understand like what it is. Like, just right off the bat, through, like, the symbolism, through, like, the lighting and, like, everything. And I don't know. Like, it's just, it's something that I appreciate so much about this movie is, like, the attention to detail in everything. Like, even even the final moments of it, like, the, just the set designs and everything. I love this movie. All right, so should we just give our ratings and dive right into spoilers? I'm going to give it, um... 4.75 out of 5. Are we, are we just going? Are we just dropping ratings? Oh, I already um, just talked a lot. Yeah. So like. <laughs> I'm going to give it a... Hmm, I'm going to give it a... 4 out of 5. I want to give it like a 4.25, but it's not sticking with me hard yet. That's, it's, a, it's a soft 4. Leaning toward 4.25. For me, I'll give it a 4 out of 5. Um, it's kind of interesting that in this film, like, it almost felt like an anthology in a way, but it's not. It's all interconnected. And just like how we recently did Wild Tales, like, I love the idea of, like, this interconnected stories. And I don't know, just the idea of, like, I feel like it's the interpretation of like a Japanese perspective, like an, it's an American's perspective on a Japanese. I don't know. It's like an American interpretation, I guess, and that's why it's so stylized the way it was. And I don't know. I love how each timeline is filmed very differently. It's a little confusing at first, but like I kind of like start to get it. And yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. We also didn't talk about the music at all. I'm going, I'm changing. Yeah, I'm going 4.25. <laughs> <laughs> the music gave it a bump. <laughs> um, yeah, I had really good editing and transitions. Like the way, man, yeah. There, there's like that scene when that lone shark came in. Yeah, and right after that scene ended, like the transitioning to these other p- two people talking in a room is like crazy, like the way it's formed. I think the filmmaking is incredibly, like, amazing. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, this is a personal five out of five. I really like it. And I, uh, yeah, I'm thankful for the film for making me aware of this guy I didn't learn about in my education. Yeah, I never. I I can definitely say I had never heard of this artist before. So, do you guys feel like this should be taught in in texts and in history, and like how we can examine someone of like I don't know what's the word? Like he had like objectives that like go beyond law, you know, like what he did. But like it's a Japanese society, so like I feel like the idea of uh, seppuku. Is you know seen much differently than like if we seen it as a Western society. Someone doing seppuku in public is not obviously not acceptable, right? It's not as tolerable, I guess, as opposed to like in Japan. So, what do you guys think of that idea? Like, if it was integrated into our society, people started doing that. Like, because Japan has a history of death and like suicide, and you know they had the forest and whatnot, and like. I don't know. Isn't that kind of tragic that people are doing this to themselves? This the man was only forty-five years old. Like, well, I believe that it's tied to like um, how they perceive honor in their society. Like, I mean, just for I, I personally don't know. I don't have any experience with it other than like the media that I've, you know, taken in. Um, but I mean, just from what I have taken in, and I don't know, I. I believe that that's like one of the the main um, values that they have, but I don't know. Uh, I think it should be, I think Mishima should be mandatory when you're learning about Japan, Japanese history, post-war, right before the 80s economic boom. It'd be absurd not to have that, or even just maybe even a foreign art class. But like in typical elementary school, American school, probably not. I, I'm, I'm, I agree like with that entirely too because like I think that uh, if there's information on it and like it's happened, why wouldn't you like have it like readily available for people to learn about? It's kind of like how um, like with history classes and everything like that, um, like they're revising it in a certain way where they cover up like you know certain figures or certain events that. Uh, I don't know that that the ent- that the controlling entities would rather not include in the overall material. So I, I I think that you know Mishima should be studied as well because like he had like such a unique perspective on art and he was also a profound writer too. Like why would you want to exclude one of your greatest like artistic uh, contributors? I mean that's kind of like censoring Michael Jackson. You know, as like his art, his work with R and B, and then his also like very controversial personal life, which 
also like begs the question like oh well is is it possible to separate the artist from uh from the artwork you know or like i don't know oh yeah like you mentioned with the pianist before and Roman Polanski. Oh yeah, Polanski. Yeah, like oh yeah, he is like a very controversial person alive too, and I think because he's still wanted for crimes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's not good. Yeah, it's also like Woody Allen too. Like, but I mean, the list goes. I mean, this is all just filmmakers too. I mean, but the list goes on and on and on and on and on and on, yeah. and. I think the problem is that when people make that their life being is like cinema. Like I read this quote from uh, David Cronenberg recently, or not recently. I, I I read it like today, but it was a quote I think from a few years ago, where he said because uh, he he was accepting like a, some honorary degree from OCAD University, and he said, "I'm here today because I've made some movies, but because of the internet." Netflix streaming cinema is dissolving. The big screen is shattering into many little screens, and this is causing much stress amongst movie nostalgia hardliners. It doesn't matter to me. In fact, it pleases me because the human body is evolving, changing, and since the cinema is body, it makes sense that the cinema is changing, evolving as well. If movies disappeared overnight, I wouldn't care. This cinema is not my life. Your art form cannot be your life. To say that it is, to make it be that, is to evade life itself. But you won't do that, will you? No, I'm sure you won't. That's a very profound Damn. quote. And I, I, yeah, I think that's very... I think that interconnects with Mishima so much. Because that's exactly what Mishima did, is just... Yeah, go against that. Say, no, it is my life. Yeah, it's an, it, that's why he's a bit of why he's an endearing figure for me, where he does, and maybe why they don't touch on him as much in like art education, or maybe I I, maybe they do. I just wasn't exposed to him, but yeah, he feels like a big outsider resisting, like insisting upon the machinations of society, be it like money or whatever expression, whoever controls what. And he feels very like I'm saying this right now. And then that's it. Even when most of society doesn't even agree with him either, people mm-hmm. don't accept. That's noble. Acceptance doesn't equal being right, or it's not inherently positive. I believe. Yeah, I think that um, it does certainly take a lot of strength to, um, I guess, go go against the flow in certain situations. Because, I mean, the pressure alone of wanting to conform. Because it's like, it's so ingrained in our own culture of, like, conforming to certain rules and things that we have in place. Like, yeah, I can, I can definitely see that that point of view as well. I feel like the movie's really, like, meta as well and self-aware. Yeah, I thought um, the actor Ken Agata, who plays uh, Mishima, was really great. Um, he, I think he really shined in like the final chapter of the movie, because I feel like the lot, a lot of the strong points in the movie is when he's in it, and then when they're in the short stories of his collections, I felt like the movie kind of halted a little bit until they're doing like the flashbacks and then getting back to the present day. And yeah, the Golden Pavilion one, I felt like it was so like overacted. 
uh, by the lead actor with like he was doing playing the guy with the stutter. But every, I felt like everyone else was really acting, and then I just felt like his was for some reason over the top. Like I get it, a person that's like stuttering, but like you don't have to also make it like visually his whole like personality too, where he can he just doesn't assert himself. And I don't know. I felt like I was kind of overwhelmed by that. I'm like, compared that to like, you know, other parts of the movie, it wasn't, I don't know. That performance stood out the most to me for some reason. What about post, was it post-coitus, the word? Post-coitus, coitus? Mm-hmm. When he's with the uh, woman and suddenly stutter's gone. He's like a hard line, <laughs> like, <laughs> firm talking <laughs> dude who's going to burn down the pavilion. Yeah. <laughs> I like the quote that the guy had, his friend had, though, about, like, beauty. He was like, it's like when you go to the dentist and you have a cavity and then they pull your tooth (laughs) and it hurts hella bad. And you look at it and you're like, that was it? That's all it was? (laughs) Yeah, I I think I found Runaway Horses to be probably the most profounding one out of the stories that were, like, represent Mishima um yeah I felt like I could have used more of that if they added more footage especially for all the stories I felt like I don't know there was I mean I know his stories are like more elaborate than that than what they've shown on film and I felt like it would have been cool if there were like 10 more minutes of like each of the story because I know there's so much more like they left out Yeah, I think I definitely enjoyed Kyoko's house the most, so, out of those three. Just all that pink neon lighting, too. Did he, did, did this come out, this came out after Taxi Driver, right? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can see some of the Taxi Driver in it without, like, I just, give me all the neon lighting mm-hmm. you can, you can give me, and I'll, I'll dig it. Like, <laughs> it's, like, it's the easiest cop out for me. <laughs> We're going to watch some uh, Nicholas Winding Refn films for, like, the next few weeks. <laughs> Just kidding. I think you, have you seen The Neon Demon? Mm-mm. Yeah, it has um, Keanu Reeves has, like, a supporting role in it, and he plays, like, a creep. But it has really good cinematography, like, neon lighting by, yeah. Shh, give me all the yeah. Keanu's, too. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't, have, I don't have much to say, I feel, about this movie. It was good. Mm-hmm. I like the music. Yeah, I feel like I've heard, like, is this the, um, I feel like I've heard this score in, like, so many different, uh, like, films or even, mm-hmm. like, games or TV shows. But maybe not. I just feel like when I first heard it, I was like, wow, I've, I know this from somewhere. But maybe not. I think it's created for the film. It's like a motif that has a bunch of different variations at points in the movie. So I think they created it. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. It, sound, it seemed like an original, you know, score for the film. And then it's so fucking good and legendary that like people just took it, I guess. Hmm. But maybe not. I mean, it's not beyond artists to like you know what key I, plagiarize I, other artists too. I, you know what I think it's kind of reminded me of is uh, I think there's a scene or like part in in such a beautiful day where the music is kind of similar to that mm-hmm. with like the really high strung violins in the background and 
like it just like it has like like it feels like you're being born oh shit no <laughs> that's your time to be born <laughs> <laughs> and this came out in 85 it's when Japan was on their big their big economic kick and everyone was starting to fear them overtaking us again in the US well, we were also on our own little kick of just hyper, hyper market acceleration and all other crazy it, stuff. It makes me wonder um, how Japan views this film, like what their reception to this film would be like. Because you know we live in America, so like we have so many different perspectives. Like, I heard um, the Disney Marvel movie coming out, Shang Chi. Mm. It's like it uses a lot of like Chinese culture in it and i heard like it's really divided when it comes to like people from china or like the chinese audience compared to how we view that movie and like yeah they just have really strong i guess i don't know if it's extreme opinions but they're saying like you can't make a movie about china without having you know a chinese director or chinese filmmaker and chinese writers and stuff because they're disney marvel movies right they're they're gonna hire whoever they want they don't care about that. To for a, a Chinese like interpretation of like this superhero. So when you're turning an American and people hate that, it's kind of like what Mishima was against, you know, like he felt felt people were not being authentically Japanese because they're giving in to like these Western ideals. That's definitely very prevalent in uh, Kyoko's house. Mm. It's like a kind of gross 60s aesthetic everywhere. Yeah, it's like doo-wop kind of vibes as well. Mm-hmm. Like from the 50s, like classic Americana, like jukebox and all these other capitalistic symbols. <laughs> the character in that loves the pain. He loves that. That's replacing whatever was there prior, probably. I think, yeah. I, yeah, I think he's a gifted... I need to read his stuff more. I just have like this, a sword and steel, I think, or something like that, or sun and steel book by him. Who would you want to see? Uh, you know, if like another filmmaker had an idea to adapt them, like what kind of filmmaker do you think could like tackle that? Not an. I'd want to be Schrader again. <laughs> Still making great stuff. He did First Reformed recently. Yeah. And that was great. Oh, yeah, we did that. Oh, yeah, we yeah, but we, we didn't ever record it. That was, like, at the very... When we That's first started. <laughs> that one's a good one. It made me think about that film, too. Watching this film kind of informed my viewing of, like, Paul Schrader as a, a an artist and how he views... Um, these like prolific figures yeah Yeah. i I really like his take on um on his character driven stories because they're just so oh there's something really cool about it because it's just one person's relation between um themselves and society at large like they are they are the prime number (laughs) like they are the odd one out like yeah if you think about like the characters that he he's written in like Taxi Driver and Raging Bull and Mishima and just like I'm pretty sure a part of him feels like he relates a lot to these characters. 
mm-hmm. and he's just like that's how he relinquishes it and yeah this is who i am I, I i really like it a lot because it just um, promotes like unique perspectives on like certain matters and like it allows like people to come to their own conclusion at the end like i don't think that it's like glorifying it in in a way that would be kind of like really disgusting and kind of a misleading i think he does it in just enough like he he distances himself just enough from it to like tell it in his own or to tell it in a certain way without involving him his own ideology or pushing his own agenda onto it because um like he presents a conflict of like first reform for example like you have you have this preacher at odds with existence itself and whether or not it's important for it to continue on versus not. And you have these very deep and profound arguments to be made about like metaphysics in general <laughs> and, and uh, humanity's involvement in like in anything, like even with Mishima, like he saw his, that was, that was like so ingrained with like the way that he approached art because art is just like a reflection of life. Right. Like, I mean, that's like one way to look at it, but, um, with, with Mishima, he was, he was the art. (laughs) Like, that's the thing that is absolutely insane. Like, I can't think of any other artistic figure or any other figure in history who like went to that length to live out their life in such a, uh, in such a way where it was like so widely accessible to anyone who was willing to like look into it. Like he lived his life on full display and you can see that in his writings. You can see that in his, uh, unique, uh, ads that he made and like also like, uh, ceremonies that he attended and like spoke at and all these just crazy instances where he was just so uncaring of what society viewed him as because he knew that they loved him no matter what he did they were like there was like there would always be fandom over him i don't know it was so it's just such a strange unique case kind of reminds me of somebody a person oh that you know <laughs> that we all know no yeah we all know <laughs> that they're completely know? different but kind of the same, not really the same, but mm. their effect on people. Mm. <laughs> I'm starting to, I'm, I'm blanking here. <laughs> I was just, I was going to say Trump. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. I thought you were talking about amongst our friends. No, <laughs> no, like, but that's, no, you're absolutely right. Like Trump is also like a very charismatic figure in that regard as well. Mm. And like even the um, discourse that he was, cause he had the media by, you know, in the palm of his hand. Like he, the guy was getting like free publicity, you know, but just dropping a hat and like, you know, like all of this other things, like, it's like those types of figures where it's like, there's so much power of influence that they have that it makes me wonder like if in the wrong hands, what they're capable of doing, which, yeah. you know, like is, I don't know. It's, it's a really strange, I think that, um, there's a lot of worth that can be, uh, drawn out of these people by just studying them and like seeing like what sort of like, uh, what sort of mindset they have in terms of like mapping out the human psyche, especially if it like helps like to, uh, show like how you can, uh, look into like certain disorders that people have 
like especially like narcissistic personalities and like just studying that just for the sake of like science and everything and um but also with his effect that he had on society's perspective at the time in terms of how they viewed art and how it got them to question things and i think that that alone is very valuable is creating room for discourse in such with such an accessible or such a such profound influence like if used for good which good is a relative term but like <laughs> yeah, you know, they like it's like there's hitler yeah <laughs> mishima trump and it's like a reflection for, of the for benevolence that i feel like is a <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah and one of them is so hardcore has his own unit like decapitate him and like that's pretty extreme not only are you like ripping your your guts out but like you're and, and, I don't, off, yeah, I don't know if anyone knows, but like seppuku is like one of the most, I think like top three, I think the most agonizing pain and death. Mm. I think number one is like um, being burned alive. Ooh. And number three is being drowned to death. Really? Yeah. But the, the, the less agonizing pain is a gun to the head. And I'm sure that's like the American way. <laughs> You're like, we ain't suffering. We're going to shoot ourselves in the, in the brains. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's like our that. honorable way of going out. Yeah, so choosing the most, not just death, but the most painful one, the, moan, the one that you're going to feel right before you're gone from this earth. <laughs> and he willingly chose to do that. That's kind of insane. Well, I mean, look at the, the monk in protest of the Vietnam War. He did the number one painful one. Because mm-hmm. he cared. didn't fucking move. Yeah, he, cared, he cared enough about sending a message. Yeah, yeah, he's been undercovered, I think. You should do a biopic of that. That's going to be a sad one. <laughs> I think it's crazy how much um, power people can have posthumously, like, after their death. And it, especially, like, the mess... Like, for instance, with the monk, like, he he committed suicide to send a message, just like Mishima and, like, countless other people, I imagine. But, like, I don't know, just willingly walking into your death has just the most timeless effect on people as uh, just in civilization. Like, like look at Socrates. Mm. Like, like, he purposely talked himself into having to drink hemlock <laughs> to, to show a message. And it, like, shaped philosophy from that day onward. And um, there's, the, I don't know, it's just crazy. Or, like, uh, Cato, like, full-on, like, <laughs> dying for his beliefs. And like in the face of like overwhelming oppression and I don't and like Seneca like walking into his own suicide as well, like after like Nero told him to, you know, die. So is the universe saying that there's something about death that's not it's not just permanence, it's there's it's a legacy. That. Like there's something beyond like this world. I don't know. I, am I crazy for thinking that th- this isn't just the only dimension that we're living in, right? Or like, I don't know. You know, I've I've always like I had, um, I think I came across it in this one book called Flatland, where it, like shows it's a story about like geometric shapes and like the second dimension, and like, and then I don't know, like there's also like a way of le- looking at it like from the third dimension, like they cannot see us. Mm-hmm. I mean, anyone who is, lives in the second... Is there a story about a person that died for, like, 37 seconds or something in that 
I don't know if I heard that somewhere, but that's a Flatlands the Cosmos bit, isn't it? With Carl Sagan when he puts an apple on the two D plane. Oh yeah, that's that's Cosmos. See, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. They only see the part where the apple touches the plane. Mm-hmm. The apple exists in the higher plane. The kid dying. That's like a. They made a movie of that recently too. Ooh. Heaven is for real. I think is the movie. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. The um, Safety Brothers movie. Are you talking about that one? Or no, that's Heaven Knows What. Never mind. Oh yeah, <laughs> like oh, yeah. entirely <laughs> different. Also, a person that may or may not do something similar with the monk did, but not on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> okay, hopefully I didn't spoil that. <laughs> No, that's like a Christian movie, like one of those <laughs> straight to VHS Christian movies. Yeah. Movie. Man, but uh, yeah, do we have any lasting impressions of Mishima? I say watch it. Oh yeah, you can yeah. watch it on Criterion. Mm-hmm. So if you have Criterion, or yeah, definitely check it out on there. I think it's also on Apple. Apple movies, and then uh, yeah, we didn't talk a lot about the movie, but we talked about <laughs> other stuff. I think that's the power of the movie. I highly recommend it. I would say if you want to get inspi- inspiration for like just f- amazing set design, watch this movie. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I believe they won an award for it. I think at the Academy. I, I don't know what they should have. Yeah. I think uh, for anyone who likes filmmaking and wants to get into it, I highly, highly recommend watching this movie because, like, as just a fan of making movies, I loved everything about, Mm -hmm. like, Tyler, you mentioned the set design, and um, Richie mentioned the meta nature of it all, about, like, it's a movie, it's like an ode to filmmaking as well, which is an absolute, like, Mm -hmm. another layer to the mix, Um, and... uh, I don't know, just that low to artistry. Yeah. But, um, yeah, as I was watching this movie, I was just so in awe of the cinematography and just the unique, like, balance of everything and the set design. Like, there's that one scene where they're in prison, I think. Mm. Yeah. And just the set design of that was just so ominous and just so oppressive and so uniform and... No, it was just very. Uh, it was yeah, like with a, a smoke floating in the background. Yeah, it, it was just like a very uh, crushing, oppressive uh, representation of the of the prison system, and seeing like, oh well, what happens like when you like go up against, um, you know, the the status quo in terms of like ideologies and stuff. It's like, oh, you're locked away because they have, like power and stuff. But I'm. I don't know. Like, I thought that the way that they were able to, you know, construct messages, like, with such intensity, like that, or, like, through their use of symbolism, like, especially, like, the, at the end, when he's at the funeral service, like, that is one of my favorite shots in the entire movie, too, or the scenes, where, um, it's, like, the, the flowers, like, going in, or no, was the, no, that wasn't the funeral scene, was it? Oh god, I'm like losing it. Um, but it's the one where it has like the the arch sticking out of the ground. Oh, it's the uh, and the clouds are like very rich. I think they're at a shrine and they're t- all the students in that play are meeting to discuss the. Oh plan. yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. That's mm-hmm. yeah, that's like one of my favorite. That's one of my favorite sets out of it all. But yeah, I just loved 
just the level of detail in it. Like I, I know that I personally love constructing sets. Um, if I had the option to do that more often, I definitely would because uh, in terms of like just movies that I could potentially make, I don't know. Um, I like it because it gives you like so much control in terms of world building and evoking evoking a certain sense of feel and mood just from like what's on screen. And it just, I think it's an underutilized element in terms of a uh, most like, filmmaking right now, or I don't know. No, I don't want to lay a blanket statement like that down. Um, I think that uh, when it is excelled and enhanced, production design makes the movie. (laughs) Like, it is absolutely insane. Yeah, uh, he kind of, like, strikes me almost like Alfred Hitchcock-like, like if he was influenced, or also, like, they're those figures that, like, are known for... You know, like how well done, like their production, the design was. You know, especially like Rear Window, the way that was filmed, and um, even uh, Vertigo and Delaney Vanishes, like that train scenario, or like who done it. You know, but like using the environment and like the backgrounds to show that, like creating a character, like the the design of it is like a character in itself because it, it implies a certain style. And I think that the stylization of it helps to create distance between you and the like harsh subject matter. Because I feel like if it was done in a certain way, it might be worshipped. And that's like kind of dangerous. But like with the set design, it gets you to... It, it, I don't, for me, at least, as I was watching, I was like, oh, this is a very warped sense of reality. Like I should be taking everything in this like, as a grain of, like with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. And I, I personally love that type of, or I think that that's an excellent use of using style uh, to influence the message. It almost feels like that term, like, magical realism, mm-hmm. in a way. I think certain films do that. Um, like uh, Guillermo del Toro films, like Pan's Labyrinth. It's almost like a fantastical, like, very, like, view of, like, reality of what's going on in that time. That's what I just thought, but yeah. In conclusion, uh, yeah, this film was definitely influential, and I feel like it, it's going to be. Oh, it is already like one of those like cult classics that people need to like search out, you know, and hopefully not someone not remaking it one day, <laughs> you know. But yeah, check it out, and this is a late film podcast. Follow us and, you know, send us questions on on Instagram and to our Gmail. Yeah, it's uh, at layfilmpodcast on Instagram and uh, layfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, so that's been our episode. Later.
さに刀を払い突き立てた瞬間日輪はまぶたの裏に確約と上った。